Thanks. It is good to uh, see you again. Uh, and um, good to see you inside. If you'll look at Psalm 77 with me, um, before we read this, I want you to think for a moment about any kind of life-changing circumstance that you're experiencing or that you think will happen, bad news that you think you might receive. Obviously, this past year, from COVID, politically, everything has, has been that in some sense. I was just reading this past week, this lady, Dr. Elizabeth Reichert, is part of the Department of Psychiatry at Stanford Medicine. And she wrote this, she said, the current pandemic has brought many significant changes to how we live each day. Routines have been disrupted and jobs have been lost and financial stressors have incurred and schools and businesses are closed and widespread social distancing efforts have occurred. And she says, in a matter of days, our lives changed dramatically, contributing to a pervasive sense of uncertainty, loss, and isolation for many people. This is more from a medical standpoint of what people have referred to as COVID depression, uh, where it affects us spiritually. Martin Lloyd-Jones referred to it as spiritual depression, something just not right. Dr. Reichert goes on to say, these factors combined increased a risk for anxiety and depression. And then she says, when we are faced with a crisis like this that threatens our health, our safety, our life, experiencing fear and anxiety, it can be unavoidable, as they are the mind and body's natural response to danger and uncertainty. Now, having heard that, imagine with me that you get the news that there is some kind of impending invasion, that your country is going to be overtaken, and your children are going to be taken from you, and you're going to be placed in exile for almost a lifetime. Psalm 77 perhaps is the setting for that, as is the book of Habakkuk, the prelude to the Babylonian captivity and exile. So look with me as we read God's word, Psalm 77. I cry aloud to God, Aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, 
I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. And when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Let's pray together. Our Father, make this passage so real to us as already has been expressed this morning in a testimony and in worship that we would run to you that we would hide in you that we would forsake things that compete for you and we would find our rest for our weary souls in you, that you indeed, O oh God, will be enough. We pray that you will take this word, apply it to our hearts. We pray for any who might be listening here or via the web that if they don't know you, by your sovereign grace, 
would take out their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh and you would lovingly draw them to you that they would find Jesus. We pray that you will bless now the preaching of your word. May your Holy Spirit apply it. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a psalm of Asaph, temple singers, musicians. It's part of a series of 12 psalms, actually. Psalm 50 and then Psalm 73 through 83 make up this section. And it's a psalm that is a, a crisis of faith. In other words, will I trust God with everything that's going on? The circumstances can be threefold in any crisis of faith. One is that there are interpersonal issues that we have, that is, issues between other people. That's marriage, children, parents, friends, work, associates. We can have just interpersonal struggle. And then there's intra, not inter, but intra personal relationships where that's pretty much a relationship with ourself that we struggle within, within our own being. And then there's extra personal relationships where something affects us from the outside that we, we can absolutely do nothing about. It's in the world. And affects us in some way, whether it's a terrorist attack or whether it's COVID or whether it's an earthquake or whatever. We don't have any control, but it does affect us. Now you can see as you, as you read through this psalm that the psalmist may be struggling with all of this. And this is, this is where we struggle in these areas. And there, there's two paths here that you can take. One can be a, a path of faith where you're going to understand that it's okay to struggle, but you're not going to take your eyes off of Jesus. Or it can be a path of isolated independence where you, you just forsake God and it's not an issue of faith anymore, it's isolation. Now in the psalm, it's neatly divided up and gives us sort of a pathway out of this, um, a pathway to release a pathway that relieves us from the crises that we experience. And what's involved here are three things in the sense that your emotions and your intellect and your will are all going to be involved as you look through this psalm. Emotionally, your feelings is going to be expressed as a cry to God. And then your intellect or your mind is going to be expressed by the kind of questions you ask yourself 
The questions that are raised here in this particular text, conversations with yourself. And then thirdly, the will is going to be involved because a consolation is going to come from God by the way you remember and the way you meditate. So we have a cry to the Lord, a conversation with yourself, and a consolation from God. So first, a cry to the Lord. This is the emotional side of this. This is verses 1 through 3. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without, worry, without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. The psalmist is giving expression to his deepest emotions. Perhaps this is a prayer. It is a crying out to God. It's a, it's a desperate crying out. Spurgeon quotes Matthew Henry by saying, The troubled mind must not drink it away or laugh it away, but the troubled mind prays it away. And so the psalmist here is crying out his heart, but he refuses to be comforted. He's so focused on the distress and the despair of the situation, or is so focused on the fact that by others it may be treated so lightly that he simply cannot be comforted and refuses it. There's a hardness here. We read in Deuteronomy 28 concerning the blessings and cursings, something about this kind of emotional distress. When God's people are not obedient, the word says, and among these nations, you will find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your feet. But the Lord will give you a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, if it were only evening, and at evening you shall say, if it were only morning, because of the dread of your heart shall feel and the size of your eyes shall see. His spirit faints. What, what does that mean? I was thinking about this, and we've all done this. I've done it. That's how I'm thinking of this illustration. Um, you know, you have a little pain or something, and you go to Google or you go to WebMD or whatever, and, and you kind of find the symptom or what you're feeling. And then all at once, you read it, and it says, that's exactly what it is. And then what happens? You get this weak, sick feeling. I could be dead in six months. 
And you, that feeling almost takes your breath. That, that's a fainting heart. Or you, especially in this past year, wake up in the middle of the night and you just don't feel exactly right. And you say, uh-oh, I think it's finally happened. So you get up and you go smell the coffee or you smell the soap to see if you can smell it. Because if you can smell it, it's good news, right? But when you first have that feeling of, uh, that's, that's a feigning heart. And so he's losing about nine things here. As you read through the psalm, you can, can, identifies, can, can identify exactly what's happening as he focuses on this distress, as he's crying out to the Lord. He's lost his confidence. He's lost his faith. His perspective is skewed. His goals, he can't find them, he can't place them, he can't name them. A life that's undisciplined, a truth that is rejected, he can't be comforted. His focus is only on bad things, his hopes have been dashed, and in all of that loss, he does what we do pushes God aside. And you note when he concludes here in this little section, when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints, Selah. And we pause. And let's think about that. And let's consider that. That's the cry. But secondly, what about the conversation? The conversation with yourself. The emotions have been involved here with a cry, but now we start to use the mind. And we look at this intellectually and thinking. And in doing that, he asks a series of questions. There are six of them. And these are very valuable, applicatory questions for your spiritual life and for mine. Because they do answer sometimes the main question, why can't I sleep? He says, you hold my eyelids open. I can't sleep. Wonder why I can't sleep. Okay, here are the questions. Will God reject me? Is that what's going on here? Nothing's working out? 
There may be an impending invasion, exile, torment. Will God reject me? I've struggled. So will God remove his favor? That's the second question. Will God no longer show me favor because I've been so disobedient? Or a third question, will God stop loving me? Didn't necessarily have or understand the theology of Paul who said the gifts of God are irrevocable. The fourth question, will God not honor his promises? Will God not keep his word? I've expressed all this emotion, and now I'm I'm asking myself these questions. Is God not going to honor his promise? Or fifthly, fifth question, will God not show me his grace? Or sixthly, is he so angry with me? Is God so angry with me that there is no longer going to be any compassion? And depending on how he answered these questions and how you would answer these questions, you might walk away and say, well, God has changed. He he is not what he used to be. I'm not feeling it. And I'm not thinking it. Selah. Let's bring God into view. But before we do that, if that's been your experience, I kind of want you to know that that's that's okay. It's okay to show this raw emotion and cry out to God in this way. And it's okay because those who've gone on before us have experienced the same thing. Actually, one of the greatest preachers that ever lived, Charles Spurgeon. In Zach Eswine's book on Spurgeon's sorrows, he says this, One November morning, a preacher named Charles Spurgeon used his sermon to describe harmful helpers who like to tell the depressed, Oh, you should not feel like this. Or, oh, you should not speak such words, nor think such thoughts. Then Spurgeon offered a strong word of advocacy for sufferers. It is not easy to tell how another ought to feel, how another ought to act. We are different, each of us, but I'm sure there is one thing in which we all are brought to unite in times of deep sorrow, namely a sense of helplessness. He goes also, he goes on to say, this is Spurgeon. He gets up to preach. And he says, I almost regret this morning that I have ventured to occupy the pulpit. Because I feel utterly unable to preach to you for your profit. 
I had thought that the quiet and repose of last night had removed the effects of the terrible catastrophe, but on coming back to the same spot again, and more especially standing here to address you, I feel somewhat of those same painful emotions which well nigh prostrated me before. You will therefore excuse me this morning. I've been un utterly unable to study. O Spirit of God, magnify thy strength in thy servant's weakness and enable him to honor his Lord, even when his soul is cast down within him. From 1865 1885 was when Spurgeon did most of his works in the Psalms, the treasury of David. And during that time, he suffered from gout, from what we call depression, melancholy. He had terrible headaches. For 20 years, he cried out, and ask himself hard questions. Then says this Esquine calls it the Carlini effect. In his sermon, The Sacred Solo, Spurgeon recounts the story of a man who sought a physician. He hoped the physician would prescribe medicine to help his lowness of spirits and his habitual despondency. The physician did provide medicine, but also suggested that he go to the theater to hear Carlini, the great Carlini, whose humor, fun, and frolic were renowned. If Carlini can't fetch the blues out of you, nobody will, the doctor explained. And the patient, alas, sir, <clears throat> I am Carlini. All of us will experience what the psalmist <clears throat> is stating here. And so emotionally, we cry out to God, we plead with him, we pray it away as best we can. But we have this conversation with ourselves because the answers to these questions, asking these questions can clarify and push us to good answers where we have felt pushing God aside has occurred now we can bring God closer as we try to answer these questions. Will God reject me? No. God's promises are sure. His favor is enduring. He will love me forever. No one will snatch you out of my hands. He will show his grace. He is gracious and compassionate and long-suffering. His anger did not, does not fall on us. His anger fell on his own son. God has not changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. You see, as we struggle through these questions, we will get good answers. Selah.
pause, stop, think. Let's bring God into view. So this is the third point. Number one, cry to the Lord, emotional. Number two, a conversation with yourself, intellectual. Now, number three, receiving consolation from God. Through the will, remembering and meditating. When you look at these last 10 verses of Psalm 77, grammatically a change occurs. In the first section, there is reference to God. But now you get in these last verses and there's a personal pronoun, second person. Your ways, you. There, there's more of an intimate connection. Something's happened through the emotion and through the intellectual endeavor, the asking the questions. Something is beginning to change. And there's a focus now on the power and the majesty of God. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the, years, to, the, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I'll remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You're the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. God's power and majesty. We begin to take note of it. We begin to look at creation. We were singing this morning, all creatures of our God and King. We, we, we look at what God has done. And it begins to affect a soul, a heart that has been changed by the grace of God. As many of you recall, in the 80s and 90s, with a lot of the change in communist nations, one was Czechoslovakia, or the, now known as the Czech Republic. There was a playwright by the name of Volkov Havel, who was imprisoned uh, for a period of time. He later became the president of the Czech Republic. But he was imprisoned for four or five years, and he wrote this as a political prisoner. He said, again, I call to mind that distant moment in the prison when on a hot, cloudless summer day, I sat on a pile of rusty iron and gazed into the crown of an enormous tree that stretched with dignified repose up and over all the fences, wires, and bars, and watchtowers that separated me from it. He said, I was overcome by a sensation that is difficult to describe as I looked at a tree. All at once, 
I seem to rise above the coordinates of my momentary existence into a world, into a kind of state outside of time in which all the beautiful things I had ever seen and experienced existed in total co-present. I felt a sense of reconciliation, indeed an almost gentle consent to the inevitable course of things as revealed to me now. And this combined with a carefree determination to face what had to be faced. A profound amazement at the sovereignty of being. I looked at a tree. I started to think and meditate and remember. And I was okay with facing what I would have to face, and that was being a political prisoner. Eventually is released, becomes the president of the Czech Republic. Consolation from God. And as you look at the conclusion of this psalm, He recalls a story. Now, stories are important. Matter of fact, back in the late 80s, early 90s, a guy by the name of Richard Pratt wrote a book. It was called He Gave Us Stories. And it, 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 was, it was a way of affecting preachers and homiletics and hermeneutics to, to think about how we preach the Old Testament and, and how one thing that, that needs to happen with this is that uh, the, the whole point of reading the Bible, it, it, the stories take you into the Bible, into the story of the Bible. But Pratt made this point also, you want the Bible or the story to come into your life now. That it's not just enough to know the history, the theology, in the context of that time, but how do you apply this now? How are the stories applied now? How do I read these Old Testament stories or any story in the Bible and say, okay, that was 3,000 years ago, that was 2,000 years ago. Okay, what, what about now? I'm living now. I'm crying out to God now. I'm struggling now. I'm asking myself these questions now. What, how is this to be applied? Well, interestingly, the psalmist here brings up a story of redemption. The Red Sea. The Exodus. Years after that, in the book of Judges, I think it's chapter 2, Joshua dies. And it says not only did Joshua die, the generation after him, and then the next generation, it says, did not know the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Now, how do you forget a Red Sea experience? How do you stand 
on the shore of the Red Sea and look in front of you, nothing but sea, and look behind you and nothing but horses and chariots and Egyptians. How did you not pass that on to your children? How did you not tell the next generation? I mean, this is the beauty of covenant theology. But they didn't. And you had a whole generation being raised that did not know the things of the Lord. And here the psalmist is coming back. And what does he say? In verse 16. He's already mentioned redemption. Verse 15. You with your arm redeemed your people. And then in verse 16 he says, When the waters saw you, O Lord, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your ways was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. He gave us stories that takes the reader into the world of the Bible that brings the Bible into the world of the reader. And the story that captivates us from Genesis to Revelation is the story of Jesus, the story of redemption. Just as that exodus is such a beautiful picture of God's deliverance, it's a picture of our redemption. Jesus was the man of sorrows. Jesus was the man who emotionally cried out, if possible, let this cup pass from me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was the man of sorrows. He asked the questions so you can answer them. He's the man of sorrows, the great shepherd you led your people like a flock. And he faced even a greater storm than the lightning and the havoc that parted the seas because the wrath of God fell on Jesus. And it's because of that it's because of that sacrifice that death and resurrection, <clears throat> the worst things we could possibly face, the hardest things that could be a part of our lives, we've been promised newness of life and a resurrected life because Jesus was raised from the dead. And death and resurrection assures us that God is good. The moment you read through these things and you cry with the emotion, you ask the hard questions, 
you come to a conclusion, even through the midst of this storm, through this difficulty, God is good. And so you get to Habakkuk. And the relationship of Habakkuk to this passage. Habakkuk is saying in chapter 2, you get through all this because the just shall live by faith. And then you come to the conclusion of chapter 3, this beautiful passage that we often read with just such delight and encouragement. Though the fig tree should not blossom, this is chapter 3, verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like deers. He makes me tread on high places. I move from fear to faith. If you were standing on the shores of the Red Sea, or you're standing on the shores of a disrupted, disastrous life right now, Deliverance and redemption seem so far off. Being delivered from Pharaoh's army was in a way that no one even dreamed of. No one even thought for a second that God is going to open the sea and make a way for me to get across. Deliverance and redemption, a way that no one dreamed of. But now, you don't have to dream. You have to think for a moment. Because it is finished. It is secure. It is done. Redemption has been accomplished and applied. To God be the glory, and may he see you through the wilderness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for taking us into the emotional, intellectual, volitional aspect of this psalm, because this is where we live. We live with other people, we live with ourselves, And there are things beyond our control that we can't manage. And yet you have been there. You have gone through the storm. You want us to cry out. You want us to depend on you. You want us to ask the hard questions because you bring such clarity. And we thank you for it. Thank you for applying your word to our hearts. And we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen.